and welcome to Hospice Insights, The Law and Beyond, where we connect you to what matters in the ever-changing world of hospice and palliative care. OMG, the OIG is at it again. Ryan, great title <laughs> for this podcast. I love it. Yeah, I'm, I, you know, I, I have a, a, a maybe another career in marketing or, <laughs> or promotional stuff. I, I enjoy these titles. So Yes, <laughs> yes well... It's a good one. It's catchy. And this is really just unfortunate news. And what we're talking about here aren't like the work plan audits that are one-off claim, you know, polls that, that hospices get. These are the provider-specific audits we've talked about on this podcast before, Brian. And I think those have you know, been extrapolated. There are many millions of dollars. They're public. It's just a lot of concern here. And the reason why we're doing another podcast is we thought that they were stopping at 13, but now we have clients more recently that have gotten the same kind of audit. So there's more than 13 hospices that are going to get this. So we wanted to get the word out to people because these are really serious. Yeah, I mean, over if you look back at the OIG's reports over the years, you know, every so often they would uh, audit a hospice, uh, and you can tell that because they make their reports public. They'll they'll publish them uh, on their website, and then about four or five years ago, uh, it was a whole group of hospices, which turned out to be thirteen, and uh, they all started around the same time. And I, I think uh, there are some that are still going through the appeal process. And I think we thought or our hope was that, okay, they're doing this group of 13. Maybe then they'll go back to just the occasional one-off every other year or so. Uh, But in the last couple of months, we've learned that now there are three hospices who are getting this kind of treatment all in quick succession. So, you know, how many more are going to be in? Is this a new group of 13 or is it a bigger group, a smaller group? Uh, that remains to be seen, but it looks like they're going after hospices again in a coordinated way. Yeah. And the reason why it's so high stakes is extrapolation. And we've talked on the podcast a lot about extrapolation. Um, oftentimes it was in UPIC audits, which UPICs can still extrapolate, but we're not seeing as much of that. But these OIG audits, they're always extrapolating their findings. And because the universe is everything you build for two years. If your error rate is 50%, which when you look at the reports of the 13 hospices from before, the error rates were around that, probably on average. Yeah, yeah, on average. I think the low might have been uh, below 20%. The high was over 80%. A lot of them fell within that 30 to 40 to you know 60% range. Just look at your revenue for two years. If if your revenue for two years was fifty million, uh, and you got a fifty percent error rate, you're going to get a report that says you owe half of that, twenty five million. So you, it's easy to do that math, but that's why these are so consequential. These are big deals in terms of dollar amount, but also, again, these are published for the world to see, and also for decision makers and policymakers to react to as well. Yeah, well, it just, (laughs) I can't say enough how incredibly punitive this is. And, you know, 
I don't know how they're pulling their sampling, but, you know, this isn't, you know, a list of the top 10 criminals in hospice that they're, you know, auditing when you look at that that list. I mean, these are very reputable, longstanding hospices that, that you're seeing. And it's just very, very, very troubling. And I won't go too far onto my soapbox about, you know, <laughs> we have statutory waiver of liability because all of these audits are really focused on eligibility of patients for either level of care or, you know, overall prognosis. And it just, it's just very, very troubling. And I think in terms of what to do, I mean, this is sort of an all hands on deck situation where there's a lot of formality in dealing with the OIG and they follow a process. And, you know, oftentimes we've been able to get rolling productions because it's a lot of records because it's going to be a hundred, hundred patients is what their sample is. So pulling a hundred records and they're doing it just for a particular month, but nonetheless, that's a ton of records to produce. And then they also typically ask for other additional records, policies and procedures and some other things, right, Brian? Yeah, that's right. It's, you know, the the claims are really a, a burdensome, I mean, it's a voluminous number of claims to gather the documents relating to 100 patients and 100 claims. So the first, uh, t- you know, the, the last round of these, when there were 13, we were representing about half of the hospices who were involved with those and developed a good relationship with the OIG where we could uh, have them accommodate us, giving us reasonable amounts of time to produce records. But yeah, beyond that, they want uh, policies and employee lists and incorporation documents. You know, they, they want to get a good sense of the background of the hospice. Last time around, none of those non-patient records really played a large role in the ultimate report that was issued. But it is clear they're looking at those. Uh, and you'll see if you look at those older reports, when they identify an overpayment, they're usually attributing the cause of the overpayment to policies that were ineffective. Uh, so they don't go into much detail about what was wrong with the policies. And we asked, so we, we tried to get that information from them. But really, the focus is on those patients. They'll review them for eligibility, six-month prognosis, uh, and kind of arrive at their conclusion. There was uh, uh, one of those uh, OIG efforts was focused on level of care, continuous home care, and GIP. Uh, so far, we haven't seen that kind of an audit in this new round. It appears to be focused more on just uh, do they have a terminal prognosis or not? Do the medical records support that? Yeah, I, I can't say how catastrophic <laughs> these audits are when you look at the dollar numbers, because if you're a large provider, I mean, those dollar numbers can, you know, end up being $50 million, $60 million. I mean, there's not many people that can withstand that type of repayment and stay in business. <laughs> so, yeah, um, obviously, you have appeal rights, and we've helped people through that, and lowering the error rate. And I think, importantly, the whole statistical side of these cases is important and getting a statistician involved, you know, very early on. I mean, we've won statistical cases, um, but oftentimes, if you win on the statistics, the government's going to challenge that and, and appeal that and try to get that overturned. So, Yeah, it's a different, uh, you know, there's been a number of developments since the last round of these. 
So, and, and I don't know if this is a silver lining, but it is a reason to continue to have hope is that we were fairly successful and are being successful in the appeals of these, bringing that error rate down, reducing the kind of sticker shock of the sticker shock effect on that report and the large overpayment. But it really takes that coordinated effort, you know, having kind of counsel, statisticians, expert physicians. And one of the differences now is that there are a number of uh, court cases that are making their way through federal courts, challenging the statistical approach for these audits and other kinds of CMS audits. There are court cases challenging the way that uh, these reviewers are reviewing medical records. We know that because we're behind a, a yeah. number of those lawsuits. <laughs> yeah. we're, we've kind of developed strategies and, and have filed those a number of lawsuits across the country to try to push back which, as far as we can tell, is the first time people are pushing back at the federal court level against hospice audits that involve these kinds of extrapolations and where the medical review really second guesses in a way that we think is unfair, the uh, decisions and clinical judgment of the certifying physicians. So I think that hopefully those court that court activity will also temper the kind of consequences that these OIG reports otherwise are going to have. Yeah, well, it is going to be interesting to see if we can get some positive results from some of that federal litigation, which is happening all across the country. So in many jurisdictions. Uh, and so we'll see. But I mean, this money comes due. I mean, you can halt recoupment during the first two levels of appeal. But after that, you have a need to have a payment plan or pay it. So yeah, I mean, that's one of the one of the problems that hospices have faced. Uh, and it's kind of facing it on steroids with these OIG audits is before you're done with the appeal process, the government gets its money. Uh, and so uh, can a can a hospice survive in order to appeal, survive to appeal the results or not? And the system is set up to make it to, to allow the government to take those funds before you're done with the appeal process. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of nuances and 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 things that need to be addressed, the extended repayment schedule and how does that coordinate with other kinds of advocacy through the appeal process and uh, any kind of negotiations you can open up. And there's also the public relations aspects. The last time around, uh, we worked with our clients to be ready for media coverage of this. And yeah. thankfully, it wasn't too terribly significant. I think, Meg, you and I had thought, you know, after they're done with these 13 reports, they're going to bundle them all together and issue a huge press release and really impugn the hospice community. Thankfully, that did not happen. Uh, but but you never know. Times are different. And I don't know if there's a change of foot, but you know, I think it's important to look at all aspects, all implications resulting from these audits and make sure you're ready for them. Well, and we have all hands on deck. I mean, we're talking about our clients having that. I mean, we are too, in terms of we're working on so many of these, unfortunately, and, you know, have yeah. a lot of people devoting lots of their time to fighting the good fight here. It's just yeah. sad. It's, I, I, I Maybe no. we just need to stop talking about it, Brian, because <laughs> I just, there is no, this is just, I don't know what's going on from a policy perspective, because this is, this is not, I think, the way 
forward in terms of, you know, having a positive impact on patients' lives and, you know, the cost savings that hospice brings to, I mean, at some point, there's just going to be a chilling effect with all of these audits of there's just too much liability um, and create access to care (laughs) issues and a bunch of other stuff. Right. I mean, you, you know, CMS does good things, you know, when they're looking at targeting the true fraudsters out there, focusing on the the mill of provider numbers that are kind of acquired yeah. to resell that, you know, good, let's get the good, let's get the bad guys with that. But, but this kind of effort uh, and really a lot of the audits in general, it, they're casting such a wide net that they're, they're getting the good guys snared in these kinds of audits, unfortunately, because I think it does create access to care issues and just a huge disincentive for hospices to take any chances on those patients, especially those who might live longer than six months unexpectedly. I mean, it's a way to avoid or mitigate risk is just to start discharging them. And that's not what hospice is about. And it's a, it would be a shame if the regulatory enforcement environment put the hospices in the position of having to make that terrible choice, which is so inconsistent with what Congress did when it yeah. set up the benefit. Yeah, it is. It is. I don't know how we got here, but right. it, it just is. It's not uh, the right track. And I know as an industry, all of the national associations have had meetings with um, the Center for Program Integrity, which that's not OIG. Um, but, and I know there's been communications with OIG as well, but those are communications. I mean, I don't know. CMS very quickly, obviously, um, with all the changes to deal with, as you said, the number mill and some of the craziness going on in those four states. But so that was, that was pretty miraculous. But here, I, I don't know those larger conversations, you know, I think it's good that we're having them. I don't know if we're going to see an immediate you know, change in the audit activity and these audits in particular. Yeah. But I wish I had like a, okay, Brian, <laughs> there's a happy note here. Yeah, we need that I, local news personal interest story at the end of these podcasts, yeah. just uh, on the lighter side. But Yeah, well, I have my new dog, Wally, that I could bring on. All right. Um, yeah, so he could We all do... need some puppy time, I think. Yeah, exactly. So, but unfortunately, no one can see Wally right now. But so, well, this is really important. And I think it's important for us to get the word out because we have had clients who got these and I think didn't realize how serious they were and what were the potential ramifications. Because I think when you get this, you don't necessarily know they're going to extrapolate and do all that stuff. And so, um, yeah, it might, it might come, it might begin with an email from someone at the OIG saying, Hey, I want to send you a letter. Who should I send it to? And, and then you get this engagement letter that says, Hey, we're going to audit you. And and then later you find out it's a hundred patients, a hundred claims. Uh, and a statistically valid random sample. And yeah, I mean, if you if you get any kind of uh, communication from the OIG, it's serious stuff. And, yeah. uh, and you need to take it very seriously and make sure you're ready. Now, obviously, work plan things are a bit different, right? Mm-hmm. That's oh, not yeah. really focused on you. But right. if you're getting one of these, it's going to follow the track you, you said, Brian. You're going to get the email and then it's it's a work plan 
audit. I mean, maybe they give you a heads up with the phone call, but it's a letter. It's for like one patient. I mean, it's very clear that that is not this. So, but anyway, well, as always, Brian, (laughs) thanks for the the conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but at least we're here. We've been fighting the good fight now for 25 years. So We'll keep fighting it as long as as long as yeah. there's a need. So that's yeah. we're we're happy to to be advocates for the hospice community. Well, I'm on going to be starting my 25th year of practice, and you're much right. older than I am. So <laughs> you know, you... maybe 28th year for me, yeah. 29th perhaps. So, so. <laughs> putting all of our brain power and experience to. Yeah, everybody's getting over 50 years of hospice, well, of lawyer experience. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Just between the two of us. I know. Yeah. Anyway. We're getting old. Um, (laughs) That is true. Um, But just wiser. Just wiser. Of course. Awesome. Well, thanks, Brian. And until next time. Very good. Thank you, Meg. Well, that's it for today's episode of Hospice Insights, The Law and Beyond. Thank you for joining the conversation. To subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at hushblackwell.com or sign up wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, may the wind be at your back.